Good morning, everyone. If you would, turn to two different texts of Scripture. Our main text is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 3, but I'll also like you to be having a uh, bookmark in Acts chapter 20, and actually Acts chapter 20 is where we'll start off. So Acts chapter 20 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. are two different studies that we're doing on Sundays. One is a series on the church and church membership, and the other is going and following the church at Ephesus through the New Testament, and we've, we've got to a point where there is some overlap in this. So I don't know whether you want to consider this part of the Ephesians series or part of the church series, but it applies to both. So, on their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas established several churches, and then it describes that they circled back around on their first missionary journey and appointed several elders in every church which they had established. We know this was the same system that Paul continued to use on further missionary journeys because later in Acts chapter 20 as he circles back around to Ephesus he gathered those elders of the church at Ephesus and gave them a farewell sermon so if you're in Acts chapter 20 it reminds you of this Acts chapter 20 verse 17 it says from Miletus that is a port city close to Ephesus from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church, and they come and they meet him. And verses 18 through the rest of the chapter records this message of the Apostle Paul to these elders or pastors of the church at Ephesus. But look specifically at verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the flock, or to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so, with some apostolic insight, Paul was able to easily identify those who were qualified and equipped and gifted for the hard work of church leadership. But it also seems evident that he had a keen eye for those who would potentially stray from the truth. What he's warned the church at Ephesus here, that pastors of the church at Ephesus, is that not only in verse 29 will some outsiders come in and be like wolves attacking the flock of God, but also in verse 30, of their own selves, so some of those pastors and elders would turn away from the truth, speaking perverse things and draw disciples after them. 
So years later now, when the church at Ephesus had actually experienced this problem that Paul predicted here, some of the elders did stray and they needed to be replaced. Paul, it seems, is left with a choice. Had he continued the practice of personally appointing elders in the churches he had established for his entire life, once he and the apostles died off, the ability to identify that next generation of church leadership would have died off as well. And so instead of going to Ephesus and appointing elders himself, he writes these helpful letters. He writes a letter to Timothy, sending Timothy to Ephesus. He writes a letter to Titus, sending Titus to Crete. And both of those letters teach how to identify and appoint elders in the Lord's churches. And so Timothy gets sent back to Ephesus on a mission of leading the church and appointing elders. And it's there that we open 1 Timothy chapter 3 and see how Paul left instructions on how Timothy is supposed to do this. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patience, not a brawler, not covetous, one that rules his own house having, uh, one that rules well his own house having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. So, in chapters 1 and 2 of this letter, Paul's left Timothy instructions for the church as a whole, and now he shifts his attention to assigning people to leadership positions. He begins by asserting an absolute truth, not, not that the rest of the chapter isn't also absolutely true, but he begins by saying, this is a true saying. And it's followed in English with the word desire. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. But really, that's two different words. Even though we, but we see the same word desire in English, Paul used two different words. So if you don't mind, I'll give you the, the JSV, the Jason Standard Version. This is a faithful saying. If a man aspires to be an overseer, he has set his heart on a noble task. And what follows is a list of requirements, a list of qualifications for church leadership. And we're going to get into those qualifications, but it 
might help if we understand the job before we understand the qualifications. So this morning, using 1 Timothy 3 as a basic guide, we'll do a topical study about the leadership of the church. And I want to begin by defining terms. The New Testament uses several terms for the same position. You may have noticed, I have uh, tried, and I, I don't know that I've accomplished it now that I think about it, I've tried to use the term elder or the term bishop and not use the word pastor yet, but I think I've failed. Paul doesn't actually use the term pastor here when he writes to Timothy. In fact, you won't find the word pastor used that way in the New Testament hardly at all. It's only used one time the way that we, we use it. Instead, Paul writes to Timothy here about what he calls a bishop in verse 1. And he writes a very similar letter to Titus, and he gives this same list of qualifications to Titus, and he uses the term elder when he writes to Titus. So the first thing we, we need to embrace is that the New Testament uses these terms, pastor and bishop and elder, interchangeably to describe the same office. So let's talk about each of those terms for just a second, and, and then I'll try to prove to you that they're all describing the same person. Bishop, the, the Greek word behind bishop is episkopos, and it simply is a word, bishop is a word meaning to look after, or to look upon, or to have care over. Essentially, it means overseer. And actually, that word most often gets translated in the Bible as overseer. An elder is the word presbyteros, and it comes from the word that simply means older in age. And it, it became a term that was used to designate an office, especially among Jews, that was a term that was used to signify members of the Sanhedrin Council. Among, among the Gentiles, it was used to describe people who were city officials. Among Christians, it gets used to describe church leaders. It can mean older in age, or it also designates sort of the respect due to someone who is a leader or an elder. The word pastor is the word poimen in Greek, and it simply means shepherd. That's all the word pastor means, is a shepherd. So used literally, it's describing the herdsman who takes care of sheep and ensures their safety and that they're fed and that they grow. Metaphorically, it is the authority who defends the flock from attack and guides them to nourishment and mends them when they're wounded or sick. As I said, the King James Version only uses the word pastor one time in the New Testament in Ephesians 4, verse 11, and we'll see when we get there that it talks about a pastor teacher. So the idea of a pastor is one who feeds the sheep, and what we're feeding is the Word of God. A Greek word is used many other times, and it's usually translated as shepherd. So, for example, in, in John chapter 10, Jesus gives what's known as the good shepherd discourse. He is the good shepherd. He's the good pastor. So how do we know that all three of those terms are the same? Well, the first way we know 
is by what the New Testament never says. And granted, this is called an argument from absence. And it's not the strongest kind of argument, but it is sort of compelling here. The term bishop or elder or pastor are never all addressed together at any point in Scripture. So for example, in in Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. And so when he's writing to all the saints at Philippi, is he leaving pastors out? Is he leaving elders out? No, he just used the term bishop there instead of pastor or elder because they all mean the same thing. The better argument is what the word does say. In these two different letters, 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul gives these matching sets of qualifications. But in Timothy, he says this is for a bishop, while in Titus, he uses it for elders. Although, actually, look at Titus with me for a moment. It's just to turn a few pages over to Titus. (coughs) Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 describe Titus's job what Paul's left him to do says for this cause left I thee in Crete that you should set in order things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee and now he's going to describe how to how to assign those elders he says if any be blameless the husband of one wife having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless. Now you see how he's using these terms, right? He, he's using these terms interchangeably, elder or bishop, right? Is he giving the qualifications for an elder or for a bishop? Well, it's, it's both because they're the same thing. I know when we use the term bishop nowadays, we picture a Roman Catholic guy in a funny pointed hat, right? But it is actually a biblical term. Not that I want you to start calling me Bishop Jason. You know, I'm not not looking for that. But this is how how Scripture uses the term just in the sense of a pastor, an elder, a bishop. He's an overseer, which is all the word means. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5 for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 5. Well, I said that nowhere in the New Testament does it use these terms to describe, oh, here's these three groups of people who are collected together. There are places in the New Testament that that allude to all of these terms in the same way describing the same person. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you. What kind of person feeds a flock? A shepherd, pastor, right? Taking the oversight thereof. Anybody want to guess what that word oversight is there in Greek? It's the word for bishop, right? It's, it's episkopos, right? So, 
Your elders, he says in verse 1. In verse 2, you are to feed the flock. You're to do the work of a pastor. And you are to be in oversight. And in fact, he goes on to say in verse 4, we continue in that work until the chief shepherd shall appear and you'll receive a crown of glory that fades not away. So Peter's saying, you're elders. I'm also an elder. I want you to shepherd. I want you to pastor the flock over which God has has made you an overseer, right? Feed the flock which is among you being a good overseer until the real pastor, the chief shepherd comes. Incidentally, let me just be blunt about that term among you. It is very important. There is the work of a pastor shepherding and feeding the flock that is right there in front of them because you know the flock and you love the flock and you know what the flock needs. Right? Nowadays we want to have we have people who want to be shepherded and pastored by some guy online who is not among them, who does not know them. Right? And that is not the New Testament ideal, clearly. Some shepherd in Minnesota or North Carolina is not going to effectively feed the word to a congregation that's in central Illinois because he does not love them and he does not know them and he's not among them. So, remember, as Paul's writing to Timothy, Timothy is in Ephesus, right? And so if you've still got a bookmark in Acts chapter 20, look at that for a second. Acts chapter 20 Verse 17 describes Paul called the elders right, of the church. And remember what he says when he speaks to them in verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, who takes heed to a flock is a pastor, a shepherd, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, bishops. Right? So it's evident that the wor- from the wording that all three of these titles are not distinct offices, but they are different ways of addressing the same office. An elder indicates the respect due to the office, and elders to be respected. A bishop describes the work of the office, that he's an overseer. Pastor is a metaphor detailing the means by which that work is done. He feeds the flock, he provides the word to the sheep. I hope that's convincing enough that all three of these terms are actually just overlapping terms for the exact same office. Maybe that's something you're already comfortable with, but before we move on, there is another aspect of this work that I want to discuss briefly, and that is the plurality of elders, pastors, bishops is always the example of the New Testament. There's nothing in the New Testament that even hints that there is a single limit of one pastor per church. Sometimes maybe that's all that's available. Sometimes maybe that's all that's necessary. But writing to the individual churches in ways that included plural terms is overwhelming evidence that the normal experience of New Testament churches included a plurality of elders, a plurality of pastors. So, for example, in Acts 20, verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus to call the elders, plural of the church, singular. In James 5, 14, it says, is there any sick among you? Let him call the elders, 
of the church, right? Elders plural, church singular, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Holy uh, in the name of the Lord. In Philippians 1:1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi, one place, with the bishops plural and deacons. And in Acts 14.23, it says they ordained them elders, plural, in every church, singular, right? We could go on, but that's enough to prove it. In fact, just thinking about the context of our text, Paul's letter to Timothy, we understand that Timothy got sent to Ephesus in order to pastor, in order to be an elder or bishop, including instructions on how to identify and ordain other pastor, elder, bishops, right? He wasn't to do this work alone. Does that mean that every church must have multiple pastors, elders, and bishops? No, not at all. But what every church must do is follow Scripture, like Paul outlines here in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, and identify those in the assembly who meet these qualifications, have the God-given desire to have this office of a, uh, a bishop, and have the spiritual gifts necessary in order to teach and lead the church. And then recognize that gifting. This is what Paul's instructing Timothy to do. If a man desires that position, and we can agree that he... He, he desires a, a worthwhile work and evaluate his qualifications and his giftedness to do that. If churches would do that, just recognize the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which he's placed in the assembly, I'm convinced having a single pastor, elder, bishop would be the exception and not the rule. Now, it's help for us, helpful for us to define the terms because as we read Paul's list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. He doesn't define the terms because he knows that Timothy already understands these terms. He also knows that Timothy, at least to some extent, understands the work to which church leaders are called. The pastor, elder, bishop, they are primarily responsible for teaching the word of God to the congregation, just, gl- just a glance at this list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, none of them are describing super-Christians, right? Paul's not telling Timothy, you need to look in the congregation and find the super-Christians and those guys are the pastors. Each requirement here of a bishop or an elder is also a guideline for every Christian to follow. So, for example... When Paul says they are to be well-behaved and not drunks and not violent, he is not saying that the rest of the church is allowed to be misbehaving, drunken, violent people. The guidelines here explain that a man is to have the same kind of good character that is expected of all Christians. There are essentially only two things on this list that set an elder apart from the rest of the congregation. In verse 6, you have not a novice, that is, not a recent convert. And then you have at the end of verse 2, apt to teach or able to teach. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with being a new convert. And there's nothing wrong with admitting that teaching is not your spiritual gift. But experience and teaching ability is needed in a pastor. An elder should be a man with some spiritual maturity and experience and has the ability to teach the Lord's Word to others. That teaching is the primary responsibility of a pastor. Preaching and teaching. Preaching and teaching aren't really two different things. Like we, we could argue that teaching is toward the mind and, and preaching is toward the heart, right? Teaching is to inform and, and preaching is to, you know, move your conscience and will. But the reality is both of those things happen at the same time. Your conscience and will do not move in ignorance, right? And any knowledge that you gain is to be actually put into practice. And so the way I always explain it is good preaching should teach you something and good teaching is always going to be a little preachy. I don't think we need to get into a philosophy of preaching at this point except to say there is not a requirement here for a man who is so wise that he's going to get up and be able to say, thus saith the pastor. Teaching and preaching in the church needs to be thus saith the Lord and nothing more. But to know what is thus saith the Lord requires that the elder, or the pastor, leads the church in the word of God. Many years ago, I used to think that a preacher just received a special little message from God prior to getting in the pulpit, like an angel would show up on Sunday night or on, or on Saturday night or on Sunday morning and, you know, hand a little scroll into the brain of the preacher so that they would just open it up and speak that on Sunday morning. Let me assure you, that's not the way it works. Preaching is a willingness to get into the Word of God to learn from it, and to pass on to others at least some small part of what you learn. And I say some small part because you don't want it all, I promise. It would be scary if a preacher got into the pulpit having spent, you know, 15 hours in study and preparation of a sermon and got up with the intention of letting all of that go at you. You don't want the totality of what he's learned, but you do want a basic understanding of thus saith the Lord. So Paul will actually go on in chapter 4 to describe the work of a pastor when he encourages Timothy in that work in chapter 4 verses uh, 13 through 16. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in you, which was given you by prophecy and the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, Meditate upon those things, give thyself wholly to them, that your profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto yourself and unto doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear you. So Paul was not content to assume that Timothy would continue in the word and study and preaching, so he authoritatively commanded him to stay in the word and study and preaching. You know, refusing to be in the word and sharing what you have learned in that study is to, in Paul's word, neglect the gift that God has given. And so he writes Timothy a second pastoral letter 
And he doesn't let the opportunity go to remind Timothy in that second letter, in 2 Timothy 2.15, to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I love that term, rightly dividing. It simply means cutting it straight. Right? Get into the word, cut it straight, give it to the people. The primary work of an elder is declaring, teaching, proclaiming what thus saith the Lord is in Scripture. There are other responsibilities as well. For example, when James says that those who are sick should call the elders, elders need to be available to attend and pray with those who are sick. There are administrative responsibilities that shouldn't be denied, right? He writes later on in chapter 5, verse 17, about ruling well and the idea of those administrative responsibilities. You could keep going down a list. He's to lead the uh, flock by example, not by authoritarianism, Peter says. He's to be a servant leader, as Jesus taught in Mark chapter 10, because service is the only real kind of leadership. He's to do the work of an evangelist. He's to be declaring the gospel of Jesus. He's to pray with and for the congregation, lifting them up. Second Peter 2.2 2 even says that he must pass on the word looking for the next generation of pastor, elder, bishops so that he can prepare them to do the ongoing work. Meaning it is actually the job of a pastor to identify and prepare others to pastor. And isn't that what Timothy was left here at Ephesus to do by the Apostle Paul? We know that some false teachers had come in and they were misleading the church. And Paul left Timothy with instructions on correcting the false teaching and selecting elders who would give proper guidance through the word. All that to say, these truths are already in Timothy's mind. He knows what an elder bishop pastor is as a calling from God. He knows the main responsibility of the position. And so now Paul simply outlines the qualifications necessary for a man to do the job well. So we're going to go through these fairly quickly. If you really want, just ask, and I'll pull out the notes from the ecclesiology class where we go through each word in minute detail. But honestly, this list of qualifications is almost self-explanatory. He says in verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless. Well, that's easy. Now, nobody's qualified. This does not mean that a pastor has to be perfect, simply not open to condemnation either by those within or without the church concerning moral issues. There shouldn't be such obvious moral issues that the members of the church could not look up to him as an example or that the opponents of Christianity would have a means to attack the church's reputation. He's to be the husband of one wife. Let me just tell you what this says in Greek. It is mes gunakas andra. It is literally a one woman man. That's what this says. He is to be a one woman man. Now this does mean, and Paul's already talked about this in chapter 2, The pastor does have to be a man. It also means 
that a man who has a husband is not qualified to be a pastor. This does not mean that a pastor must be married. Although, I highly recommend that to be the case. But to apply it that way, then we have to do the same kind of thing with the rest of the qualifications. For example, we would say, based on verse 4, not only does the pastor have to be married, he also has to have children. The subject of divorce and remarriage is often brought up in this passage. However, it is a stretch to think that that's what Paul has in view. The issue of divorce is a concern, but it would be much better pointed at the family qualifications in verses 4 and 5, right? Whether or not a divorced and remarried man can pastor or should pastor really should focus on the issues around that divorce. Like, was he physically violent? Because if he was, being a striker is on this list, right? Did, did the cause for divorce give evidence that he did not rule his own house well? Right? Those are the places where that becomes a concern. These are the general characteristics of a man who makes, would make a good elder. The next three, vigilant, sober, and of good behavior. All of these three can essentially be viewed together. The pastor is to be a person who is temperate, sound-minded, self-controlled, and decent in their conduct. Some guy who is prone to losing control and behaving badly is not qualified to be a pastor because the pastorate is going to give him plenty of opportunities to lose control and behave badly. He is to be given to hospitality, Paul says. There are practical reasons why this is a necessity. It was especially true in Paul's time, but it's true today as well. Traveling Christians and ministers needed to provide hospitality for one another. Although this should apply as an attitude for uh, non-pastors as well, this term here for hospitality is philoxenos. It's literally a lover of strangers, right? We have to have an attitude of kindness and love towards people we don't know. Apt to teach is on the list. This is first and foremost the responsibility of a pastor. In Ephesians 4.11, where that term pastor is actually used, it is a pastor teacher. Right? This word means more than just being willing to teach. It also is describing having skill in teaching. One translation gives this as an able teacher. Altogether, the pastor must be willing to study, able to absorb the truth of God, and skillful in communicating that word to others. Not given to wine is on the list. Not a drunk. Right? Anyone whose mental faculties are affected by anything other than the Holy Spirit is not fit to pastor. Not a striker. I love this. I'm bad at bowling. So I qualify. This, this word here, nothing to do with bowling, it literally means not ready for blows, not a fighter. Right? It carries the idea of being 
physically contentious. Because again, if you're prone to losing control and punching somebody in the nose, the pastorate's going to give you the opportunity to lose control and punch somebody in the nose. You've, you've really got to be able to control that. Not greedy of filthy lucre is on the list. And also later in that verse, not covetous. The ministry is no place for a money-hungry individual to be found. They're very soon going to find themselves trying to get a hold of the bag just like Judas did. He's to be patient. That is gentle, a courteous man. So far from being contentious that he would rather part with what is his by right rather than fight with a brother in Christ. Paul also says not a brawler. That is someone who will not fight, whether it's with his hands or with his tongue. He is to rule his own house well, having children in subjection. This one is clearly explained by Paul. He says, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? If a man's family is a mess, his leadership of a church is also probably going to be a mess. Not a novice. The word there, uh, we use the English word neophyte. Right, it comes with the idea of newly planted. Paul also explains, explains his concern here that lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. A pastor must be tested and tried over time before assuming the office of a pastor. Being lifted up with pride is a genuine concern. The Next on the list is a good report of them who are on the outside. The good report here. Literally, that term is a good witness. Now listen, this does not mean that a man with a sketchy past life before he was saved cannot be a pastor. While it is true that an individual with a past life of obnoxious crime may well have a difficult time in the ministry, we got to remember who's writing this, right? The Apostle Paul did not disqualify himself but he's very open about his former life before Christ that's not what this is describing this good witness here is evidenced in a moral character in which people can see that the Lord has changed him and sustains him but really here's another way that we know these qualifications are not you know hard line thumbs up thumbs down you know, a litmus test. Is there any man who can say he's got a good report of all non-Christians? I would be suspect of any man who has a good report of all non-Christians. The guy writing this had been stoned several times by outsiders, and not everybody is going to like him, and not everybody is going to like any pastor, right? It is the work of a pastor to show a good moral character, a good witness to those on the outside. The offense that outsiders have of a pastor should not be of the pastor's own character. It should be of the pastor's message because they are offended by, thus saith the Lord. In general, there, there shouldn't be any moral concerns with a pastor. All right, Paul, Paul tells Timothy that church at Ephesus needs more 
pastor, elders, bishops, but he's not going to personally spend the rest of his life choosing elders in every church that he established. He knows, I think, that cannot go on in perpetuity. The Lord's churches need some standard that after Paul and the other apostles are gone, that they can identify and select elders, and so this letter is it. Without these guidelines, the Lord's churches would not have guidance on how to select a pastor, how to select elders. What would the church at Ephesus have done? Now, they would have, they would have reverted to worldly wisdom. Oh, well, you know, he's a great businessman, so I'm sure he'd be a wonderful pastor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote for Joe because he's my cousin. That's my Aunt Phoebe's neighbor kid. We should, choose, we should choose that guy because he's tall and he's handsome and his kids are cute. And as a bonus, his wife plays the piano. So we should pick him as a pastor. Let's put everybody's name in a hat and pull one out. Or we've, we've got three guys who we see desire the position of a bishop and so we should write down a list of pros and cons and do a a personal interview of like a job interview of all of them and then go straight to a vote that makes it a popularity contest that's not the direction of the new testament maybe only one of those guys is actually qualified maybe all three are qualified and all three should be called Here's how simply I think this worked in Ephesus. It wasn't done by a popularity contest or the results of like a cost-benefit analysis. The congregation looked at these qualifications and determined which men exemplified the character that was required, was clearly gifted by the Holy Spirit to do the work of teaching, and who personally felt spirit-led to as Paul says in verse 1, desire the office of a bishop. And when they could identify someone who had a God-given desire for that office, met all the qualifications of that office, and they could identify as being spiritually gifted to do the work of that office, he was taken and made to be a pastor, elder, bishop. Right? Because that's the work of the Holy Spirit to, to give these things to the church. So this is how we still find qualified men today. And each of those men must know that they are under shepherds. Right? The flock is not their flock. As Peter said, We're doing this until the chief shepherd, until the one who really owns the flock comes and takes it from our hands.